Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, my name is Daniel Morden. I'm a storyteller from Wales in the UK. For 30 years, I've made my living telling myths, legends, fairy tales and folk tales. Now, during this crazy year, stories I read or heard many years ago have wormed their way back into my memory, like a snatch of melody I couldn't place. It was as if they were whispering, listen, I can help. So when I track down the stories, they seem to have something to say about the pandemic and the way our lives have changed. So I've told these stories in a podcast. Every episode consists of just one story. It goes out weekly on Sundays. And if you're interested, you can give it a try at www.danielmorden.org slash podcast. Thanks for your time. Happy holidays, kiddies! <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Wicked Library's annual Chris Massacre. <laughs> We've got a good one for you this year, kiddies. But first, let's dig up the old host and have a few words. Got to pay the bills, kiddies! <laughs> you, Piles, get to it! Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to the Wicked Library's annual Chris Massacre episode. If you look on your holiday podcast bingo cards, this episode is 1019. That's 1019. Hey, somebody out there is a winner, right? <laughs> My name is Nelson Piles, and I'll be filling in for Dan today because that's what the librarian wanted, and every once in a while, old Crispy Britches cracks the whip. Literally, like, really hard. Now, whether you celebrate Christmas, or Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa, or Pancha Gepate, or Ayid El Fider, realistically, it was just easier to call this Chris Massacre. That's all. You know, no real uh, solid religious affiliation, although I, I am a recovering Catholic, so Christmas is kind of what I do with me in mind. But this is Unitarian as humanly possible as it can be. And we've got a really great holiday-themed episode for you this year. Uh, just allow me to pay a couple of bills real quick because we have to keep the lights on. I mean, that's how the Wicked Library do. And I want to give a big thanks to everyone who took the time to give us five stars and give us a short review on iTunes. The ratings that you give us help other people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Now, sometimes a librarian does select a review or two to read on the show, and if you submit a five-star rating and review the show on iTunes, there's a really good chance the librarian might give it a read and uh, call you out on the podcast. So that's kind of cool. Also, if you need a last-minute gift, I realize that this episode's on... Uh, going to be dropped on Christmas Eve. But if you need a last-minute gift, 
13 Wicked Tales is still available in print and on Kindle on Amazon.com. It's a perfect gift to scare your friends, family, or even somebody you don't like very much. Um, it is our first written anthology, certainly not our last, but uh, it is it, it is a mighty one. And hey, it's not going to fit in a stocking, but it'll fit everyone else. You can even get a digital copy. And you can pick up a copy at thewickedlibrary.com slash read. It is jam-packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show. And it's also got fantastic cover art uh, and interior art for each of the stories from the great Jeanette Andromeda. So get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com slash read. And last but not least, a big, big thank you to those of you supporting the show on Patreon. We've had a lot of new supporters sign up. And uh, I'm sure they'll tell you that you're getting your money's worth. No matter what level you are supporting us on, we all thank you from the bottom of our black little beating hearts. And without you, this show would not be possible. Wouldn't even exist. So if you're not supporting the show and you want to change that, just go to patreon.com slash wicked library. And now let me kick this back to the librarian and we will get this holiday party started. And just so all of you know, all of the music today, with the exception of the main theme, which was composed by the great Tony Rousek, all of the music for each of the five segments on the holiday episode today was scored and performed by the great Nico Vitesi. Find his info in the show notes and check out his other work. It's really fantastic stuff. Happy holidays to you, mate. And now, let's get Merrily Wicked. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Purple and Paul by Scarlet R. Algae, told by Daniel Foytek and scored by Nico Vitesi. Two mornings before Christmas Eve, we get four inches of unexpected snow, and that's when the shoots break through. I see them when I go out for the mail, and for a minute or two, I just stand there and stare, fat, wet flakes clumping in my hair and dropping down the back of my coat. Nothing should be growing in this cold, yet there they are, slender stalks poking a good two inches above the snow cover all along the walkway and around the edges of the house, with swellings at their tips of the stems, suggesting they're about ready to bud. Whatever they are, Eric had ordered them online months ago, and we had planted them in April, plump, dark green seeds streaked with red, with hopes of results in June. 
blooms in summer, exotic foliage, had been the only English words on the webpage, alongside a short paragraph of what looked like Turkish and a few showy photos of broad, waxy white flowers that had resembled nothing more than long-stemmed poinsettias. But June had come and gone. The whole summer had been gray, rainy, far too warm, and nothing had happened. Not a shoot, not a leaf. Certainly no exotic foliage. Though, when I squat in the snow for a closer look, I see tiny, thin, serrated leaves that are edged with a deep purplish red, like the seeds. Nick, what are you doing? Eric, of course, wondering why I haven't brought the paper in. Two years of marriage, and he's already turning into his father. I straighten up, clomp back on the porch, and grab his arm. Eric, you have to see this. He scowls. He's only in a t-shirt and sweatpants, but he lets me lead him as far as the head of the walkway, his socks soaking up snow. Huh, is all he says, unimpressed. Guess it's a winter species after all. Must have been a mistranslation. By evening, we have six inches of snow, and the new stems are at least twelve inches tall. The leaves are now an inch wide, with sawtooth edges and they're no longer green, they're purple. The next morning, there's no fresh snow, but Eric's weird plants have shot up another foot. The stalks are still thin, but they have a woody quality that wasn't present the night before. Tall and straight, though they're putting off little needle-slim growths that look like runners or vines. There hasn't been a hint of a breeze since the snow stopped falling. Yet, when I look out the front door, or any of the side windows, I can almost swear they're moving. Just a little. Still, we're hosting Eric's parents for Christmas dinner, and we don't have the tree up yet. He always likes to wait until the last minute. Says it was a tradition when he was growing up. So when he brings it up after breakfast, I'm too busy getting decorations out to spend time staring out the windows. I make three trips up and down from the attic with boxes of ornaments before I realize he's not setting anything up. Instead, Eric's looking outside, the way I'd done an hour earlier, shifting his gaze back and forth from the plants to his phone, frowning. You know, he says when I step up beside him, I don't think we got what we ordered. <laughs> no shit, I answer, though I bite my tongue on commenting that it hadn't exactly been a we decision. So what is this, some kind of invasive species? God, I hope not. He swipes at his phone and scowls. They don't match anything I can find online. And the stupid website doesn't exist anymore. All I can think about is that weird news story about people getting seeds in the mail. I'd forgotten about that, and I peek over his shoulder. Eh, too late to worry about it now, I guess. But look, Eric, these things didn't have buds an hour ago. Nick, they don't have bu oh. But they do, and not tiny buds either. These are four inches in diameter, easily. 
It's hard to tell from inside, but squinting at the nearest one I can see, I imagine a glimpse of white inside the tightly curled burgundy leaves. Eh, forget it, Eric nudges me off. It's kind of freaky they're growing now, but it's going to be super cold tonight. That'll probably get them. Come on, we've got to do the tree and the outside decorations. Lunch is a Coke and a grilled cheese sandwich after we get the tree decorated because we've got to hang wreaths and lights outside. Eric always treats the holidays as though his parents will spring unannounced from the bushes at any moment. I do the wreaths first, one for each of the front windows with the big one for the door, locally sourced evergreens, which Eric's mom will appreciate. Then Eric sets up the ladder and I'm carefully untangling twinkle lights when he says, Nick, is that blood? He's never been one to drop everything and rush over for a minor injury. I look down at my coat, which is open, and my sweater, my hands, the edges of my shirt cuffs. I don't see any... There, he points toward my feet. Looks like blood. I glance down. I'm standing beside one of those damned weird plants. The leaves are longer now, drooping and curling, and where they touch the snow, fractals of maroon spread out from the contact. I start to reach down and one of the new vines sways toward my finger. I can't shake the thought that it's a deliberate movement, and I straighten up fast. I'm fine, it's just... Eric follows my gaze. Okay, exotic bleeding flowers or whatever, that's just freaky. He shakes his head. Lights first, then we'll deal with that. I hand him one end of the tangle-free strand, and he starts up the ladder but less than halfway up, he stops, a crease forming between his eyebrows as he cocks his head. Um, Nick, do you hear something? Ah, uh, shit, not about a vertigo again. This had happened back in May when we were working on the roof. It had started with Eric's ears ringing and ended in the ER after he'd fallen off the ladder. But the look on his face is one of concentration. So... I stop unwinding the lights to hold my breath and listen. It's faint at first, distant. Then it swells in my ears, an atonal melody, slow and full of minor notes that sound almost like voices, almost soothing, but just discordant enough to set my teeth on edge. Nick? Eric's dropped the strand. He's holding onto the ladder with all ten fingers, my name laced with panic. Nick, move. I glance down again. The long purple stalks are swaying in time with that weird tune. A leaf brushes my shoe and uncurls in a grasping motion. I scramble back onto the porch just as Eric catapults off the ladder and does the same. There's a vine coiling around the lowest rung, and there's a rip in the hem of one of his pant legs. What the hell, he says, shoving me through the door. What the ever-loving hell? We retreat into the living room. For two hours, the wine-colored stems creak and twist and grow till they're as high as the windows, blocking out the sun.
I think they've stopped. Neither of us has spoken, has even moved from the couch since our mad dash inside. Eric flinches at the sound of my voice, but all I can give him is an apologetic shrug. I mean, I think they've stopped. Nothing's rustling anymore. Eric lays his head back and sighs. There's a rational explanation for this, right? There has to be. He sits forward in a swift movement and scrubs his hands through his hair. Like the wildfires every year, there's always some kind of plant that can't do its thing unless there's temperatures 200 degrees. So that's it. I manage not to laugh, but only because this is so surreal. What had been tiny shoots and leaves only yesterday are now inch-thick woody stalks, tall enough that the house is nearly dark at only 2 p.m. All the rain and heat during the summer wasn't enough for these things. They had to have half a foot of snow to give them a push. You have a better explanation? He growls. No, I admit. I don't. But your parents will be here in two days. Your mom will bitch if we don't have the lights done. I haven't started the food prep, and since it's Christmas week, I'm pretty sure we won't get a master gardener or something out here to tell us what the hell to do. Yeah. Eric sits still for a minute, and we listen. No creaking, no odd sounds. Then he picks up his coat from where he'd shed it and gets to his feet. Stay here, Nick. I'm going outside. That gets me standing. What are you going to do? What we should have done yesterday, he answers. Cut him down. It's fine, I tell myself. Eric has gotten the pruners from the garage, and I've busied myself in the kitchen. Ordinarily, I'd put on some holiday music to do this, but without it, I can hear the dull, regular snaps of stalks being neatly cut. So clearly, it's fine. Herb butter for roasting the turkey. Sage, garlic, rosemary. Snap. Rosemary focaccia from the freezer. Snap. My grandmother's recipe for cranberry orange relish. Snap, snap, snap. Then Eric shouts hoarsely, and it's followed by a distinct thud. I'd pulled my boots off two hours ago, but I don't bother with them now. I don't even go for my coat, I just stumble outside. The stalks along the walkway are dead. They stretch out of the snow, brittle and black, bleeding ash now instead of red. At the corner of the house, I find the pruners and pick them up. A few feet ahead, where the plants are thickest, I find Eric. Or, at least, I find the shape of him. He's a long ridge atop the snow, completely covered in wriggling, stretching purple vines. As I watch, the mass of him shudders and goes still. Then the plants begin to sing. I lunge for Eric, but the music sinks into my brain and everything fuzzes over. Time dilates and stretches. The pruners slip from my grasp and sink into the snow. And as I stand there numbly, the enormous buds begin to open into flowers. White, waxy, huge just like the website photos. 
and in the center of every mass of bloom, a toothed maw opens, red and wet. I can't feel my feet now, but I stumble forward anyway. Clumsy half-steps, miring in the snow. A vine lashes around my ankle. Then another, and another, stripping skin and drawing blood. But they're also steadying me, reaching up my legs and guiding me forward. Toward Eric. Toward that dissonant chorus. Toward that forest of hungry waiting mouths. The Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Michelle Renee Lane Told by Dana M. Lewis And scored by Nico Vitesi The first time I saw a man naked I watched his bones break and flesh tear As he transformed into a beast under the light of a full moon At first I didn't know what I was seeing It took a minute or two for my brain to catch up with my eyes. And honestly, my initial shock was because of the size of his penis. Daddy had sent me to deliver some gator meat the man had ordered. Take this over to Samuel Landry. He's expecting you, Daddy said, handing me the gator meat wrapped in newsprint. It's Christmas Eve and it's getting dark, I complained. Then hurry up, take your bike and get on over there, and then come right back. Aunt Addie and Uncle Nathan will be here soon. We'll eat when you get home. I sighed and headed out onto the porch, letting the screen door slam behind me. I ran down the crumbling wooden steps, kicking paint chips ahead of me, before jumping off the last step and landing on the grass that was still green in late December. My Schwinn was parked against an old telephone pole since the kickstand was missing. The bike had been a hand-me-down for my older sister, Janine. Daddy had given it a new coat of purple paint to cover up the rusted spots, put on new tires, and a brand new banana seat and matching handlebar covers that were purple with sparkles. It was a sweet ride. I glanced up at the skyline. The sun was setting, and I didn't want to be in the part of the bayou where Samuel Landry lived after dark. There were too many ghost stories floating around, and even though I was an honor student, I wasn't immune to the power of superstition. For as long as I could remember, almost every ghost story or tall tale I'd ever heard originated in that part of the parish. I tried to avoid it in daylight, but now that it was getting dark, I was even less thrilled about going there, and on a full moon, no less. Besides, spooks or not, Samuel Landry's wife had gone missing two years back, and no one had seen her since. There was no body, so technically, there was no crime. He claimed she'd run off with some other man and was glad to be rid of her but local gossip had him guilty and convicted of a murder my neighbors were sure he committed. 
It's like Daddy was setting me up to be a sacrifice or something. I pedaled my bike through the woods that led to the swamp where Landry lived. He had a hunting cabin tucked in there nice and deep, and it was at least a 20-minute ride to get there. The sun was setting, but the air was still hot and clung to me like a soggy wool blanket. Sweat soaked through my white cotton t-shirt so you could see my bright pink bra. I knew I should be embarrassed or at least act like I was, but I kind of liked the idea of boys seeing me like that. Well, at least one boy. Jamie Trudeau was the most handsome boy I'd ever laid eyes on. He had golden, almost ginger hair and clear gray eyes that reminded me of clouds on a winter day. Not that we got much winter in the parish, but I'd seen pictures of snow and winter storm clouds. His nose was covered in freckles, freckles that also covered his upper arms and shoulders, which I discovered last summer when Daddy took me and Mama to the community pool. We usually just swam in the lake, but Daddy took us to the pool as a treat. On the way there, he explained that black folks weren't allowed to swim in public pools when he was a kid and how I shouldn't take it for granted. I watched Jamie roughhousing with his friends near the deep end, where they were taking turns jumping off the diving board trying to see who could make the biggest splash. They were laughing and carrying on until boy Danvers slipped off the edge of the diving board and cut open his forehead before falling into the deep end of the pool. He must have hit it hard enough to knock himself silly because the lifeguard had to dive in and pull him out. After that, Jamie and his friends weren't allowed to play on the diving board. Boyd was okay, but his mama had to take him to Lady of the Sea Hospital over in the Forge Parish to get stitches. Jamie didn't notice me staring at him the rest of the afternoon while he swam, laughed, and sunned himself on a towel on the grass. In fact, Jamie Trudeau never noticed me. I may as well have been invisible because he acted like I didn't exist. Of course, each time I tried to talk to him, I got scared that I'd say something stupid and ran in the other direction. At 17, I'd never even kissed a boy, let alone gone on a date or told a boy how I felt about him. It's not that I wasn't interested. I was definitely interested in boys, but Mama had put the fear of God in me about what could happen if I started messing around with them. Nothing scared me more than the thought of getting pregnant because nothing would bring shame to a family quicker than an unwed teenage girl who was dumb enough to get knocked up. At least that's how my family felt. There were plenty of unwed young mothers in the neighborhood, but none of them lived in my daddy's house. And that's the way he and Mama want to keep it. I had hopes of going off to college. My grades were good enough, and three of my teachers had written letters of recommendation for the three schools I'd applied to the previous fall. Mama and Daddy were poor enough that I qualified for all kinds of grants and scholarships, so going to college wasn't going to be a financial burden on them. But Mama was worried about me being far away. Me? I couldn't wait to pack my things and head off to college. Two of the three schools had accepted me, and I was trying to decide which one to pick. 
I still had time and planned to make a decision soon. I knew that student work was available to me at both places so that I could earn extra money on top of the grant and scholarship money that would basically cover tuition, room and board, and hopefully my textbooks. I could survive on a meal plan, but I would still need money to get my hair done or buy a new pair of shoes or go out for a meal with friends. If I made friends. The only real friend I had was Stacy Abelard. Stacy and I had been friends since the second grade when her parents moved from New Orleans to the parish. She hated the parish when she first got there, hated leaving New Orleans like her mama. But after we became friends, she seemed to like being in the parish a bit more. Over the years, we became very close and told each other everything. But when I caught sight of Samuel Landry, Behind his hunting cabin, naked as the day he was born, I wasn't sure I would be able to tell anyone what I saw. First, like I said, he had an impressive male appendage that was about the length of my forearm and about as thick as my wrist. I gaped at it like I was at the zoo watching lions mating. It had almost been full dark when I arrived, and I heard him out back when I approached his front door. Thankfully, I hadn't said anything to let him know I was there, which was good for two reasons. One, if he had seen me looking at him while he was bare-ass naked, I would have died from embarrassment. And two, once he transformed into the seven-foot-tall beast, he would have ripped me apart. As big and scary as he was, I was still mesmerized by the size of his penis, which impossibly seemed to have gotten bigger during his transformation. I had read somewhere that fear could be a turn-on for some people, like a fetish or something. Up until that point, I had no idea that seeing a monster with a monster penis would awaken my sexual interest. Especially not for a man who may have murdered his wife. And now that I knew he had turned into a monster during the full moon, I had some suspicions about what might have happened to her. Unlike the Twilight movies, he didn't transform into a wolf like Jacob Black. He was more like a black and white movie monster, standing on his hind legs that resembled a wolf's, but were also somehow human. He had the head of a wolf and claws for hands, and his entire body was covered in thick black fur that caught the moonlight and looked wet with the blood that had seeped through the wounds caused by his transformation. I should have been terrified, and I was, but I also kept wondering if he was in pain. Then he let loose with a howl that sounded like a freight train whistle and something more primal, splitting the silence all around us. The sound snapped me back to reality. He scented the air with his mouth open, revealing two rows of huge, sharp teeth. He caught the scent of something that made his mouth water like a rabid dog, and when his head swiveled toward where I was hidden along the side of his cabin... I nearly peed my pants. I covered my mouth to quiet my urge to scream and hoped he didn't hear my breathing. If he heard me, I would have been dead on the spot. 
When I pulled up to his house a few minutes before the moon had poked its way out of the clouds, I had dropped my bike out in front in the grass. My heart was thundering in my chest. Could he hear it? I tried to be as still as possible so I wouldn't make a single sound. But I needed to get to my bike to get the hell out of there. I kept waiting for him to run off into the bayou to hunt down whatever he would be eating that evening because I didn't want to be on the menu. He must have known I was there because he kept scenting the air and looking my way. I pressed myself as close to the cabin as I could and was glad for the shadows that kept me hidden. A loon called to his mate off in the distance, distracting him from my scent, and he ran off in that direction. I didn't wait to see if he was coming back. I left the gator meat on his porch, hopped on my bike, and tore ass as fast as my legs could pedal. I was halfway home before I realized two things. First, I was crying. Tears streamed down my face and I was too scared to notice. And second, I wasn't alone. Something was perched in one of the old tupelo trees behind the house. It was too dark to make out a shape, but amber eyes glowered down at me from the branches. Had Samuel Landry followed me from his house? How had I not noticed him tracking me until I got home? How had he gotten there before me? Too frightened to ponder the hunting behaviors of a full-grown male Rougarou, I slowly walked my bike to the front porch in the hopes of not drawing any more attention to myself. As I got closer to the house, I nearly broke into a run but stopped dead in my tracks when the ember at the tip of Uncle Nathan's cigarette glowed red and illuminated his face hidden behind shadows on the porch. Waiting until he knew I'd made eye contact, he whispered, Don't run. A memory of a TV narrator's voice warning viewers not to run when being stalked by a predator dropped into my head out of nowhere. Had Uncle Nathan watched the same nature program? Or did he know more than his high school education would lead most people to assume about his intellect? Again, Uncle Nathan made sure I kept my eyes on him as he stepped into the light cast from a street lamp up the block and once again whispered, Come to me. But slowly, skeptical of how well he'd be able to protect me if the Rougarou decided to join us on the porch, I had no other choice but to slowly walk to my uncle. I had to trust that he'd know what to do next. I was almost on the first step when Samuel Landry growled from behind me. He was close enough that I imagined his hot breath on the back of my neck and hoped it was just the humidity. I quieted my instinct to bolt onto the porch and kept slowly walking toward my uncle. Good girl, he whispered, slow and steady. When my red converse hit the third porch step, Samuel Landry charged up behind me and took a swipe at my back. His nails were like phrases cutting through the white t-shirt that was so drenched in sweat that it felt like second skin. I screamed and Uncle Nathan grabbed me, pulling me onto the safety of the porch. I thought for sure we were dead. But Samuel Landry stopped on the third step where he'd nearly got me and stared up at us, panting and gnashing his enormous teeth. 
I clung to Uncle Nathan the way my sweat and blood-soaked t-shirt clung to my body and gazed up into his face. You're safe now, girl. Why isn't he attacking us? Uncle Nathan pointed to the arch above the front door. A beautiful wreath of green leaves with tiny white berries had been hung there while I was gone. What? What? It's mistletoe. Addie had one of her dreams and thought it would look nice hanging above your front door, he said. Aunt Addie's dreams had weird ways of coming true. Let's get that back of yours looked at, he said. I turned to the monster who was really a man on my porch steps. And despite the fact that he tried to kill me, I felt a little sad knowing he'd be alone that night. Merry Christmas, Mr. Landry, I said, and headed inside to be with my family. Let Nothing You Dismay by Jessica McHugh Told by Heather Thomas And scored by Nico Vitesi It's our first Christmas without the children And the house has a blistering chill I didn't expect. This isn't where we raised them, so it's not like the place suddenly feels too big without their colonizing energy. And there aren't any neighborhood kids running about to flood us with memories of rosy cheeks and lilting giggles. There are no plows making way for school buses, or convoys of teens dragging their sleds up the tallest hill. There aren't even any empty nesters like us to overhear on their porches, sipping hot toddies as they discuss the holidays of old. Still, Christmas doesn't enfold us in warmth like it used to. This year, it wraps itself around us like an itchy tree skirt. And for the first time, the house feels truly barren, vast and cold as the cosmos. But the cosmos is lovely, too, isn't it? Infinite and embryonic. Our lives could be like that, too, if we let them. If we stop hiding from the silent winter and embrace it. I need to embrace it. I open the front door, and as I raise my arms, it feels as though my body defrosts in the sunlight. Of ice of age, and of the last vestiges of the cage we busted free of in Fresno. I sigh. Thank God I can unfold my wings entirely now. Thank God I still remember how to fly. As I float down the frosty streets, I sing my favorite Christmas carols, the ones the kids hated. God rest ye merry gentlemen, and we three kings. I catch snowflakes on my tongue and test the strength of frozen puddles with the tippy-toe of my boot, smiling at the cracks I create as I exhale darts of breath that look like smoke. God, 
how I used to love smoking, especially after a few drinks. It always seems so magical to me how quickly a cigarette can change an environment. Even outside, the smoke explores. It invades. It sinks into everything it touches, covering existing scents like a steamroller over a paper cup. But it's been a hard and fast rule for ages now that you can't be a good mother if you smoke. It's too selfish. Too crude. Drinking isn't ideal either, but we mama bears and boss bitches find our way around that, don't we? Brunches, fundraisers, book clubs, all acceptable occasions for ladies to get hammered without much judgment. And it's worth it, you know? Because you get your babies clean and bright as April showers. And for those little miracles you'd give up every single squirt of joy, even after realizing that almost all of your children's best qualities were stolen from you. Not intentionally at first. There was mirroring and mimicry before outright theft. But with knowledge and hurt comes anger, and from anger comes revenge. And joy, of all humanity's gifts, is so very easy to steal from someone you've been inside. Those days are gone now. Thank the Lord. And I'm doing my best not to feel anything but gratitude about both the arrival and passing. I've come a long way, trust me. When we first got here, it seemed like we did nothing but mourn. And for a long time, I thought we were doomed to rot in our empty nest. But as I stroll through the lazy snowfall speckling our quiet little town with every second of my life back in control, I find I can't stop smiling. You haven't come as far, unfortunately. You still weep daily. You curse the quiet. You act like the spare room in our new house is every room they loved, where they slept and played and made plans for the future. I locked the door the week we moved in, blocked it off entirely a month later. But still, I find you stationed at the room, attempting to break in or sitting outside, calling their names like I've hidden them away just to torture you. Kids leave, I say. That's what they do. They grow from you, learn from you, steal from you, and then... When you can at last see your effect on them, they leave. I wish you could decorate the house with me. All the houses. No one will mind, I promise. And the town looks so bare and gray without holiday decor. I can't plug anything in, of course, but the strings of bulbs are enough. They suggest life and project holiday without electricity. Just like the stockings hanging over our mantle imply the existence of children, in spite of the truth. We're the children, I tell you. We can be young again, forever. You cry and thrash in frustration, and my heart sinks. You must have soiled your diaper again, 
Why else would a grown man cry at the prospect of reliving his youth with the woman he loves? I don't think you understand how wonderful it could be if you'd stop crying and consider how much we're gaining with the children gone. We could take up painting or learning musical instruments. We could turn this house into one big Rube Goldberg device. Or all the houses. We could transform this entire goddamn neighborhood into our personal amusement park. Each place could be a hideaway. Every day could be a holiday. And the children could come home? You promptly shrink in your wheelchair and apologize for the idiotic question, but I don't accept it. You know how much it hurts me when you ask if they're coming back. How can I feel anything but the belief that you want to hurt me? You shake your head and mouth no, as best you can. But I don't believe you. Unless you really think they're walking through that door one day. All three of them. Soft and new as soil under snow. And vowing, as they did on the day they broke free of my womb. They would be ours forever. In spite of every natural law, they assured me of that eternal bond. They cried it out to me as the nurses cleaned and weighed and sucked my insides from their ears and nostrils. Each one, every time, warbling. We'll be the babies that stay, babies. We'll be the babies that stay. But they didn't stay, babies. And they didn't stay. They grew like weeds the world told us not to rip out. And even when they did things I believed betrayed who they were meant to be, I let them run free. I let them be young. They developed their own languages and biases. And in a few short years, they were the babies that would rather die than stay. Don't you remember how they screamed at us the night they left? They called us monsters. Worse, they called us bad parents. They said we were holding them back. They said they knew some great horrible truth about us and could no longer live under a roof of lies. Children think they know everything. They think they're invincible, too. I pluck wind-scattered tinsel off the curbs and exhale a cloud of breath. But nothing is invincible. I suppose you think I enjoy this. It may seem to you like I'm living it up here, delighting in an emptiness that only I can fill with light. But I need you to know, there isn't a single moment that passes as I string bulbs and hang wreaths that I don't wish we were together again. A big happy family. You, me, the kids... Even that yappy dog, Betty, we got after they wouldn't stop begging us for weeks. Which is about as long as they took care of her, if you recall. And you? Refused to help, too. Everyone was always too busy to scoop shit, or scrub shit, or do shit. Beyond the bare minimum. But when people who beg for love choose to abandon it less than a month after inviting it in? That's not something good people can ignore. Good people 
live up to their responsibilities. Even if it means coaxing love out back and shooting it dead. Kids, so fickle, so forgetful, so careless, and so easily distracted by the faint promise of a sweeter, shinier, more lovable thing, whether it's within grasp or just a nebulous dream. Sometimes it was a new video game or a pair of funky sneakers. Sometimes it was a vacation during which they tried their damnedest to spend as little time with us as possible. With you. You wheeze. And I shake my head. Always passing the buck. Always deluding yourself into thinking their dreams of new, exciting lives actually included you. But you were just another hand-me-down stain they wished they could lift out. And if that failed, cut out, my dear simple love. Because it was easier, and frankly more fashionable for them to walk around with holy clothes than exude even the suggestion of flaws. That's what you are, sweetheart, in every sense of the word. On the spectrum of flaws, you've been so many, rashly and unapologetically, but never all at once. Don't get me wrong, so have I, and so have the kids. The difference is, I can admit when I'm wrong. I can admit when I fall short or retreat from the discomfort of confrontation. You've denied the ways you disappointed and embarrassed them, even now, even after all they said that night. Every parent likes to think they're the one the kids don't hate. But we're a team, I tell you, in creating them, in raising them, and in sending them away. You cry. You can't need to be changed again already. But I pat you to make sure. Just like a baby. My last baby. They were sweet. Don't get me wrong. The sweetest at times, I thought. More than any other children born into this world. But it was never easy to hold on to their love. Still isn't, if you ask me. From the day of their births to the night they disappeared into a midnight moon shedding blue snow, they fought to break their promise to me, to us. I squeeze your shoulder, and you shudder. They wouldn't have stayed, I say, even if we were perfect. You tell me you hate this town, this house, this holiday, me. The way you say it reminds me of how you used to clip your toenails, waiting until they were coarse and overgrown enough to make the perfect projectiles for firing in my direction. You let anger and isolation build and rot and sour inside you, replicating and hardening until your fungal hate is sharp enough to wound, maybe even kill me. But that's so silly. Who would take care of you if I couldn't? 
Don't forget who clips your toenails now, darling. Don't forget who bathes you and feeds you, who wipes your rashy ass and makes sure you take your medication. If I died, you wouldn't be far behind. So you might as well enjoy our quiet life together. Laugh at my misshapen snowmen and my inability to string tinsel around the tallest evergreens. Marvel at the empty houses wrapped like gifts and rusted lampposts trimmed with green and reds as far as the eye can see. Look at what I've built for us. And love me again. Love me for the first time, if that's more palatable. This is a new world, after all. We never had, never could have had, this kind of freedom when the kids were around. When this town's residents were around either, come to think of it. Not that there were many. The ghost town was mostly populated by single men, drunks, and junkies no one would miss. There were a few couples, though one was in the process of becoming single when we arrived. The young woman of the pair was overdosing in the town square when we pulled into town. Not the greatest sales pitch for our new home, I admit, but something about these cold, dark streets spoke to me. I also admit I was dehydrated and hadn't slept in days, but I'll assign only a sliver of blame to those deficiencies. The rest was nature. Even the haggard young man screeching over his bruised and bony bride as she flopped on the asphalt and choked on her vomit was as compelling as a sunrise. Considering our farewell scene to the children, our arrival in this junkie-infested town was a startling affirmation. It assured me that I made the right decision back in Fresno, and you made the right decision to forgive me on the drive here. Clearing out the town? That was the right decision, too. Those people craved release. Drugs or death. They needed relief more than anything. However, they could get it. We gave them that. You shake your head and fling saliva at me. Yes, I know. You don't approve. You made that perfectly clear when I showed you what I did for us. For your fragile mind, it was the last brittle straw. It broke then and there, stealing your independence. And my hope that we'd be living it up like the old days now. But it's been so long since the old days. So long since you rejected their proposed renaissance, even. And it seems like you don't remember what it was like being careless children in love. I think about it all the time. How we used to lie and steal and run the streets like bolts of lightning and vanish like cackling ghosts. I thought we agreed to get back to that us when the kids left. Why did that have to change? Foam dribbles down your chin as you growl. Because of what you did to them. I sigh. And the people here. 
another sigh, harder, heavier. Yes, and? And. Your face scrunches and your frail fingers curl against the arms of the wheelchair. Because you didn't do it to me. My chest goes cold. It's harder to catch a breath at this moment than when I was stapling red foil to the roof of a pretty pink rancher in 30-degree weather. You want to leave me? Trembling in the chair, you wheeze. I want to be with my babies. I grit my teeth, my upper lip trembling. They were going to abandon you. I don't care. They didn't love you enough to stay. That's not true, May. They broke their promises. They made no promises. Their bones did. Their blood did. You couldn't possibly understand what it's like to be a mother. All those little organs forming inside me were unspoken vows, assuring me that if I severed the cord connecting us, our bond would remain eternal. I clutch my chest breathless. But they lied. With every cell, they turned from me. Traitors on their first days and their last. Your chin glistens with fresh froth. You're a monster, you hiss, and I grab your slimy jaw. For the first time since the aneurysm, you smile, and it comes too damn easy. I've been wondering if your constant frown was a symptom of brain damage or our new life, and now I know the truth. I release you so hard, your wheelchair hits the wall, and you flop over one side. I turn my gaze to the Christmas tree in the corner. We were saving it to decorate together on Christmas Eve. But it's obvious. You have no interest in doing that with me anymore. Or anything. Maybe you never did. Husbands leave, too, don't they? Especially with no children around to tether them to mad wives. Despite your continued presence, when you realized at once what I'd done and that you didn't have the strength to turn me in. You disappeared into your grief and horror, then into the broken thing you are now. You squirm in your chair, twisting yourself enough to look at me. Do it, you plead. You never loved me, because you never knew me. Whatever you gave our children... You are a stranger. Whatever you gave the people who lived here? An imposter. Put it in my dinner. A trickster. Do it while I'm sleeping. You want to ruin me. Just let me see them again. 
I laugh, and it appears to cut you deep. I'm glad, grinning in triumph as I say, You are not my husband. May, please, I want to be with them. You don't even know them. You're a fake, a demon, a shadow. You don't deserve to be wherever my children are. You're crying again. Or maybe you haven't stopped since they left. Almost a year since you found their bodies. Since I convinced you it had to be done. Since you became... this. You scream at the top of your lungs like there's someone else but me who'd hear you. Even I'm a long shot at this point. I turn away, and you threaten to call the police. I laugh, and you thrash in your chair, trying to make it roll. Go ahead, try to find a working phone, or a flesh-and-blood cop. You can't even leave the house, my darling. But I can. And when I'm gone, the snow will cover my tracks. You scream for me to end it. To end you. But the Christmas carols in my head grow louder and louder. And with the crisp winter chill that kisses me upon leaving the house, I feel like the snow will cover you too. Maybe someday the truth will come out and I'll have to pay for what I've done. Maybe I'll even deserve it. But until then, there are lots of wreaths to hang and plastic reindeer to set up on rooftops. There are traditions to break and vows to uphold. Because yes, even though it's my first Christmas without my husband and children, I am still a wife and mother. And this holiday, more than any other, is a woman's time to shine. Every so often I think I hear screams coming from the house at the end of the block. But in my cozy pink rancher decked out in tinsel, I sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, and smoke a cigarette in the dark. Have Yourself by Nelson Piles, told by Cynthia Lohman, and scored by Nico Vitesi. Go on, then, and have yourself a little drink. It'll help ease the tension of the night. Family gathering, seasonally appropriate. You just want to get on with it and get it over. A little drink will let it come easier, hopefully. Make it go a little faster. It's not a happy time, though, to be honest. The entire year has been a bust. You're not even sure why you're here. Standing at the little open bar that your brother-in-law set up in the front room. Bad whiskey and high school gin. After this year, that's what you get? Fucking Christmas with the relatives. But it can't be light, can it? It's been a year of loss all around. Grandparents dead within a week of each other. Hell of a way to start the year. And then just 
watch it all follow suit. Everything has been heavy from the get-go. The entire year has been a fat, steamy pile of shit and not very subtle. Still, you've taken it all on the chin. Your cousin Paul dying in that oh-so-predictable way you'd all been talking about since high school with a bunch of naked dudes. Meant as a joke, but a cold, sad truth revealed all too dramatically. The death of your older sister, allegedly at her own hand. You stand there with your cranberry and piss gin trying to smile at these people. Your family, well, what's left of them anyway. Uncle Yusuf standing by the fire pretending to know how to keep it lit. The house will be filled with smoke in no time, guaranteed. And everyone is smiling at you. It's such shit, isn't it? Your cousin Amanda sends a group text to everyone. That she's still talking to, anyway. Saying that she's not coming after all. That something is up with the car and, goddammit, won't be able to make it. Everyone breathes a sigh of relief. No one really likes Amanda. She would just get entirely too drunk and mean. There'd be enough drunk and mean to go around, thanks very much. You admire her for that. She never, ever hid her disdain for the family, and that's why you're glad she bailed. Glad she at least listened to you. You've been doing this your entire adult life, and to be fair, most of your childhood. It's never been a merry anything, not even once. The only thing to look forward to had killed herself, apparently. You and Marina would sneak out for a smoke or two during the evening festivities. You'd talk about her shitty husband, who, for some fucking reason, still goddamn showed up here at her house. You were close when you were both kids, and that never really changed the older you got. Even when you told her not to marry that asshole Jared, and she called you an asshole. Which you suppose is still true. Even then, he just kept proving you right. She was ready to leave him, and you were along for that ride. The years and years of talking about it until one day, your sister was gone. Her absence hangs like an open wound this year. She was the only good person in the whole fucking family, and you know it. You look at your niece, Tilda, and even at three, she knows it too. This nasty pile of something called your family had one bright spot, and it snuffed itself out, or allegedly did. Tilda is picking her nose, and what she doesn't ingest, she wipes on the carpet in the large dining room, or the curtains, or her shithead father's pants. It's the only thing that makes you smile. Marina is dead. The reason for coming at all is gone, and you won't after this holiday. This is the grand finale, so to speak. You will not set foot in this house again. You make a second cranberry and gin. You see your mother just looking at you, shaking her head. You offer a smile with no feeling behind it. She huffs and looks away. This makes you genuinely smile. You kid yourself, trying to second-guess your plan. You're going to wear the stain of these people for the rest of your life. But there is no second-guessing. You're never going to see these people again after tonight. Poor Tilda doesn't have a chance. 
Jared won't live long enough to die from a pre-diabetic stroke, but not before ruining this little kid. You can hear his arteries closing. For an absolute know-it-all, he sure doesn't know the Reaper has parked her car, waiting for his dumb ass to drop dead mid-chew. Mom, you might pretend to be sad for a day, but you need not ever set eyes on her again after tonight. Everyone else... Your sister would have been absolutely eloquent in her thoughts on this. Fuck them all, little brother. This awful evening drags on for far too long, as it always does. You're entertaining one drink before you exit forever, but you've come this far. At this point, all you have to do is wait for the sign. You don't wait too long. Your mother comes downstairs after putting Tilda to bed, and it's simply the adults waiting for the last part of the ritual, a heavy chunk of rum-soaked fruitcake. The fruitcake is as much tradition in this family as alcoholism, diabetes, poor eyesight, and suicide, or alleged suicide. And how convenient that you decide to take up the honored tradition that your sister held. You're smiling, about to burst that you have brought the fruit cake this year. You bring out the cake that's been soaking in rum all evening and watch the vultures begin to feast. You watch Jared shovel a piece of the size of a fist into his mouth. He's chewing and talking to Uncle Lamar. Lamar, damn near 60, is eating his cake like it's a bowl of peanuts. You wonder where his goddamn fork is. Your mom is barehand eating hers in giant gulps. It's nearly hilarious as you watch her with your Aunt Mo, trying to talk through a mouthful. You sip on your cranberry juice. No more high school gin. Aunt Mo staggers a little, not a lot, into your mom, but it's enough to knock them both over. You hear Jared laugh as the two women collapse. Lamar looks at him oddly as his nose begins to bleed. In the other room, you hear Aunt Beatrice begin to cough harder and harder. Missy, your cousin, starts hitting Beatrice on her back hard enough to make you cringe. Eventually, even that stops. There are all of the thuds that one would associate with someone falling over. Or several people falling over. You hear labored breathing. You hear coughs that slowly die down. All at once, a great calamity rises up, and then, just as sudden, it sinks and becomes quiet again. With all of the quiet, you hear a carol playing softly in the background, and it makes you smile. It took some doing, but getting the rope over the crossbeam in the main archway feels like an accomplishment. You started to sweat a little bit in spite of the house being a little cold. No matter. You tie the rope around Jared's feet and begin to haul his useless ass into the main archway. His eyes are wide open. The pained look one gets from a chemically induced throat closure. You pull his pudgy form up high enough so you can look him directly in his eyes one last time. That's the plan, anyway, as you tie off the other end of the rope to the handrail of the staircase. You look at him, gently swaying back and forth. 
and you smile at him. You'd take a picture, but seeing him like that is enough. Also, you destroyed your cell phone so you won't be traced. However, you do take this time to text Amanda from Aunt Mo's phone, saying that she needs to get there and take care of Tilda. It seems something is wrong with the fruit cake. You spell almost everything wrong, because Monique Forrest never had patience for spelling shit right. Amanda will show for this. You have a good chuckle at that as you wipe the phone down and put it back in Moe's hand. You see the wreath that you and Marina made in grade school together, leaning by the front door where you had left it. Jared always hated it and was delighted to be rid of it. It was hers, after all, and hey, shouldn't it be yours now? You pull two evergreen sticks from the wreath. They're dry but not too brittle as you shove them into Jared's dead eyes. There's a small popping sound as each stick pokes through. You're surprised at how easy they go in, and you smile. Now you begin to make sure your small footprint this Christmas Eve Eve is eliminated. You take the glass you've been drinking from all night and put it in your pocket. You leave through the back door and through the yard, You walked here from your hotel since it was a fortunately mild winter night and no one sees you walking back. The hotel clerk says nothing. It's Christmas Eve Eve. He waves a hand without looking. Tomorrow, you will take the train to Hoboken and then the path into New York. Everything is still running on actual Christmas Eve, although very limited this year, which is good for you. You put the glass in the sink in your hotel room and put the evening's clothes in a plastic bag. You shower and dress in the clothes you'll be wearing tomorrow and potentially for the next few days. You'll be a distant memory before too long. You'll start a new life. Amanda will care for Tilda and maybe she'll have a shot. You wish her well and maybe regret not taking her but Tilda was always more Jared's kid. No matter now, though, she'll be fine. You stare at the ceiling and think of your sister. Tilda will be okay, you whisper to your sister. You imagine as you close your eyes, your sister whispering back, So will you, little brother. So will you. Frost Thy Blood by Daniel Hale, told by Nelson Piles, and scored by Nico Vitesi. Here is a bedtime story, Andre, like you always wanted to hear, the kind your mama forbade me from telling you. We knew that the menial Herbert was up to something. His foreman had submitted several reports of odd behavior as well as at least one incident of sudden violence. We didn't think much of it at the time. The menials are all a bit soft in the head. Comes from their upbringing, raised from birth to build the tributes demanded of the outside world. 
the toys, the saints' dolls. Sad creatures. Not their fault, of course. They're kept separate from most of the city, treated like living machinery or, or animals. When they turn violent, they even behave like animals, biting and clawing at each other for no apparent reason. Herbert, though... When they finally got around to assigning me onto the case, I realized this was different. The incident turned out to be a bit more premeditated. According to the foreman, Herbert had beaten another worker into unconsciousness before sawing off his leg. When asked, he said to the foreman that he wanted to see how it worked. I read the earlier reports. First one, the foreman submitted on behalf of some menials who had complained that Herbert had been rude. Didn't do anything about it. Who cares how the menials treat each other as long as they do their jobs? It was only when he saw for himself what they meant that he got worried. It seemed that Herbert's odd behavior had to do with who he was talking to. When he talked to superiors, he talked like a menial, all soft and slow, never looking them in the eye. But when he talked to the other menials, it was like he was a different person. The foreman saw him stand up straighter, heard him speak deeper, and when he did, the menials treated him different, like they were more scared of him than their actual superiors. If it hadn't been for the thing with the saw, I might have thought the boy was just imitating it. But as it was, I thought I ought to get some more perspective. The foreman told me Herbert had one friend in the factory by the name of Crump. Idiot thing, even for a menial. Spoke of Herbert as though he were the saint in hiding, though the foreman had no idea why. Took some persuasion, but I got the little creep to tell me all he knew of Herbert's comings and goings. And one other thing. Andre, you remember how I tell you to go cold when the other children are mean to you? To be like ice and feel nothing from them? Did I ever tell you that I learned that as a naked officer? It is our motto. Frost thy blood. It means to chill yourself to the world, to take whatever horrors that come with indifference. Solstice is a cold city, my son. The only way to survive it is to be colder still. Frost thy blood. Crump showed me something he'd stolen from Herbert. A doll. This was troubling enough. No menial is ever allowed to keep what is made in the factory. But this doll... Andre, I, I tell you, it moved like no doll should. Every twist of its limbs caused its face to adopt a new expression of agony. And as I moved it, it moved on its own, contorting and shaking as though in terrible pain. Beneath the wood, it felt alive. Frost thy blood, I tried to remind myself. Be as ice. But it was hard, Andre. It was hard. I, I wasn't entirely sure how to handle this. In theory, I could have simply arrested him, and that would be that. 
The charge of harboring tribute would have been enough, though usually arrest is only enacted for repeat offenses. I might need to explain myself to the chief of the naked, receive a demerit for hastiness, though probably not even that. Plenty of menials, after all. To tell you the truth, I think I was scared. Scared of this menial who pretended to be better than he was, and who could make a doll feel pain. I told the foreman to leave off on Herbert for the moment, said there were some details I needed to follow up on. Asked him to keep an eye on him and see if he did anything else out of the ordinary. Hinted that there'd be repercussions if he told anyone else. Didn't tell him about the doll. I was terrified of the thing, but I was terrified more of the thought of anyone finding out about it. I wasn't even asked for follow-up on the case. It was just assumed it had been taken care of. So I went to the Yule Lads. I know, Andre, Mama and I have always told you stay away from the Yule Lads. They're dangerous criminals. And they are. They're murderers and thieves. But I'm not sure how to explain this. Sometimes I must talk to them. They do bad things, but if I help them with favors, then sometimes they can help us stop worse things from happening. There's a tavern where the Yule lads do most of their business, the Yowling Mog. I went there to speak to their leader, Mother Gryla. She's an old woman. Some say she was one of the first pilgrims who came with the saint to build the city, but she has no love for him or for Solstice. Wants nothing more than to tear apart this temple and expose him for... Well, you don't need to know that. The point is that she is a dangerous person, and I would not have gone to her if I didn't have to. And if she didn't already owe me a favor. I showed her the doll. She tested it the same way I did, bending and twisting it. Then she went further, took off its clothes, and cut into it with a fingernail. She cut shapes into its skin, I suppose. Shapes I, I didn't recognize. It screamed in a voice scarcely larger than a cricket's, and it bled. Mother Gryla nodded as though confirming what she suspected and told me that the doll had been made with Julehow methods. Not the wood, she said, like the saint's dolls. Those are made from a Julehow tree that only the saint and his inner circle have access to. This doll had been made from pine wood, but the technique by which it had been animated could only have been Julehow in origin. We call them jollies because this is simpler to mock than understand. I know in school you are taught that they are angelic servants of the saint who taught him the secrets of the dolls, burned in homes all across the world to stave off the evils outside that surely hunger from solstice. This is a lie. I do not know what the Jollies are or where they came from, but they were here before there was a city. They do not counsel the saint. They do not protect us, but play with us, leaving madness in their wake, as well as trinkets on occasion. Still, the official story is that the Jewel House showed themselves only to the saint and to possess any of their relics is the highest crime 
so I knew that I could no longer delay. If the menial possessed demonstrable knowledge of jolly secrets, he had committed the highest blasphemy, and to delay his arrest would only ensure my own condemnation. Stupid. If only I'd stopped to wonder how Elsie Menial could have learned such things. It was deformed. It must have been. I told him I was ready to arrest Herbert. He asked me to wait a few hours when he could get him alone. He said the menials might become restless at the sight of their tormentor in chains. This wasn't strictly in keeping with protocol, but I couldn't see a reason to deny his request. I know now that Herbert's patrons must have gotten to him by then, and he was only delaying long enough to tell them I was coming. Oh, Andre, the things I should have told you before, the things you should have known about the fathers. Forgive me. They were waiting for me in the foreman's office, two of them. I did not recognize them, but they wore the white beards and red cloaks we all know so well. They beat me into unconsciousness and beyond. When I awoke, I hurt more than I ever had before, strapped to a table in a dimly lit workshop, being tended to by the menial, Herbert. In the workshop all around me were, well, they looked like dolls, mostly women and children, dressed in dolls' clothes, faces painted. They stood against the walls surrounding us, exactly like dolls except for two things. They were life-sized, and they were breathing. I suppose if a man can make a doll cry like a person, he can just as easily make people act like dolls. I don't know how word of Herbert's talents reached the fathers. It must have, as I doubt that any of these poor people came from the city. There have long been rumors that the fathers smuggle things into Solstice during their yearly pilgrimage around the world. Most of them were criminals before, and their appetites are transparent. They must have offered Herbert the bodies in exchange for making them like dolls. Maybe paid him, but I, I don't know. The way he was looking at me as he organized his tray of knives and screws and hammers, I got the feeling that for Herbert the work was payment enough. He worked on me quite a bit before I managed to get away. It took some time, but was able to distract him. I flattered his skills, sung his praises, complimented his art that stood all around us. I must thank little Crumpf, I suppose. His sickening blathering about Herbert told me much of what I needed to know. Enough to get Herbert to come closer, anyway. Enough to distract him while my thumbs broke and I, well, uh, I got free. And Herbert is dead. There is your story, Andre. It won't be long now. Papa will be going, but at least you can rest. You and you and Mama. The fathers are coming for me. I am sorry, Andre. I couldn't let them make you a doll. Be cold, my son. <laughs>
and sleep well. How many choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? How many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to the lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher and now iHeartRadio.